We're closing out our Emotionally Healthy Relationship series today. Um, it's been a really great series, hasn't it? Hopefully, um, yes, hopefully you feel like God's stirring your heart. Hopefully you've stepped into some healings. Hopefully you're seeing things that maybe you haven't seen before. We're not done yet. God has something great for us today, so just hold on. This series has been built around the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality series that Pete Scazzaro has written, and it's kind of built around this quote that emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. It is not possible for a Christian to be spiritually mature while re remaining emotionally immature. My message today is titled, Fight Like a Peacemaker. And nowhere is our emotional health more evident than when we're in conflict. Maybe um, you've had a conflict recently. Maybe you want to do an audit on your emotional health. Like, how am I doing? Maybe you could ask your spouse, say, how, how was that last conflict we had? Or a coworker or a friend, because in conflict, we kind of see what's really going on regarding our emotional health. Now, I want to say something before I dive right into this, uh, this sermon today. We're talking about conflict, we're talking about reconciliation, and I just, um, as I was preparing for this message, Dave and I were chatting, communicating with the elders, we wanted to make something really explicit at the beginning of this message. Um, domestic violence is a real thing. It's a real thing, and sadly, it's a real thing in Christian communities. And you might be here today, and you might be experiencing domestic violence in your relationship. You may have experienced it. You may know someone who is, or you may suspect that they are. And we just want to say something right at the front, that your safety is a priority. So we want to draw attention to a really great organization in the city called La Casa de las Madres. They do tremendous work supporting people who have experienced domestic violence. They provide support. There's a 24-7 confidential hotline. I've done work with them, really appreciate them. We are going to be highlighting them in our church email tomorrow. So those resources go out to you because you matter. Your safety matters. The safety of your children matters. And as we talk about conflict and reconciliation, I'm going to be talking about going back. And for some of you in this room, it's simply not safe to go back that it may be dangerous, it may be toxic, it may be abusive. And what I don't want you to do is get back into an unsafe, dangerous situation because it's the Christian thing to do, okay? We want to resource you, we want to support you. So you'll see that in the email. The other thing I just want to point out is maybe during this series there's been some stuff coming up and you're just like, oh, what to do with this? There is a plethora of amazing therapists in the Bay Area. Christian, non-Christian, I want to encourage you that if you're discerning how to navigate unhealthy relationships in your life, what steps you should take, please sit down with a professional. Please sit down with a therapist and just say, this is my life, this is what's going on, and help me discern what steps I should take. Is that cool? Is that okay? Yeah. Good. All right. So we are going to be in Genesis 32, starting with verse 22. And it's a bit of a chunk, so just stay with me, okay? It says, That night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. And then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go 
until you bless me. The man asked him, what's your name? Jacob, he answered. And then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. And Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. And the sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. And therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Jacob looked up, and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and his two female servants, and he put the female servants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him, and he threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And then Esau looked up and saw the women and children. Who are these with you, he asked. Jacob answered, they are the children God has graciously given your servant. Then the female servants and their children approached and bowed down. Next, Leah and her children came and bowed down. And last of all came Joseph and Rachel, and they too bowed down. And Esau asked, what's the meaning of all these flocks and herd I met? To find favor in your eyes, my lord, he said. But Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. No, please, said Jacob, if I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God. Now that you've received me favorably, please accept the present that was brought to you, for God has been gracious to me and I have all I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you're in this house today to do big things. Father, I pray that you would increase our faith to anticipate from you miracles, that you would shift deep things in our life. Father, we didn't come here today to just see human work. We can do that in our own strength. We came here today for the supernatural. We came here today for something more that's outside and beyond our reach. God, and some of us here today are in pain and we're struggling and we just need an encounter. And I just wanna thank you in advance, Jesus, that you've come to meet us. You come to do significant work in us. And Lord, would you use my words this morning to silence the voice of the enemy. Would you just slay some demons in this house today, Jesus? Would you free us from shackles of brokenness, from things that we've been carrying in our life for generations? In Jesus' name, amen. So I was given this topic to speak on, the topic of conflict and fighting, and a few weeks ago I was chatting to my husband, and he was sitting behind me, massaging my shoulders, as all husbands should do, I might add. And, uh, and I said, hey, babe, I'm going to be speaking in a few weeks, and I'm speaking on conflict. And his fingers literally stopped. And I was like, yeah, 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 I'm going to be speaking on conflict. And then he kept going, and I said, so how is it being in conflict with me? <laughs> and he stopped again. And there was like a long pause, and he said, you know, you just come really fast, really hard. <laughs> and, and in my head, this is what happened. In my head. What do you mean I come fast and hard? I don't come fast and hard. Anyway, if someone has to come fast and hard, it needs to be done. You know, sometimes fast and hard is what is necessary. <laughs> and then my outside voice said, that's a fair comment. That's a fair comment. Because <laughs> my husband and I are very different people. We've been married for 13 years. I think we have a photo. Yeah. Look at that. Yeah. 
I actually had to edit that photo because it was such a depressing San Francisco day, you could barely see us. So I added some light. Um, those baby faces right there have no idea what's coming for them. <laughs> because they have no idea that that right there was a recipe for a perfect storm. So here's why. I'm, I'm an Enneagram 8. It's what they call the confronter or the challenger. Um, I, I'm very comfortable with conflict. I actually kind of enjoy it. It's a weird thing, I know. And I kind of need somebody in my life to resist and push against, right? I also know how I'm feeling at any point at any day. And you can ask me, Ruthie, how do you feel? And I know. And I'm also a fairly decent communicator. So it means that I can tell you exactly what I, what I feel and what I want very clearly, and I kind of enjoy it. Now imagine being married to that kind of person. That's challenging. That's difficult. I'm also British. And you know, what some people might call cutting, I call being specific, right? <laughs> in a family where emotions were very much there, very present, not a perfect family, but we did emotions. We talked about them. I saw them. That was my upbringing. Then I married a man who's an Enneagram 5, and he is an observer. He's a little slower. He likes to think. He likes to look around. It takes him a little bit more time to kind of process. Comes from a family that was pretty silent. They didn't really talk about conflict, and if it did happen, it was usually in a language that he wasn't super comfortable with. And so we brought into our marriage these two sides, different personalities, different values, different family of origin. And that, it resulted in that photo right there on that wedding day, and everything seemed so perfect. And yet our marriage has been far from perfect. In fact, it has been a struggle at times. Now, I'm happy to say that this September we're celebrating being married 13 years. I'm super thrilled about that. We made it this far. Um, and I, I feel like our marriage is strong and healthy, but at times it has been difficult because here's the reality, what most of us don't want to admit, is that we bring our family of origin, our experiences, our personalities into our relationships. You see, some of us even came to San Francisco to run away from our families, didn't we? We might not have even said that out loud, but it's kind of how we felt, like, how far away could I go? Like, how could I, where could I go and plant myself where my parents are never going to want to come visit or really hang out? San Francisco, that's great. <laughs> so we come here. But probably what you've discovered through this series, or maybe through your own relationships, building your own family, is you can't really outrun your family of origin. You can't really outrun who you are, what you carry, your experiences, and your memories. We carry those with us into our relationships. If I did a poll today and asked you how many of you were mentored by your parents and how to deal with conflict, we'd probably get some mixed results in this room, but the reality is we've actually all been mentored in how to do conflict. Whether you saw it modeled or you didn't see it modeled, you have been mentored to do something. You see, if you saw it done really well and you saw positive interactions around conflict, you might have picked up some really great tools. The reality is that probably most of us, that wasn't our family story. For some of us, we saw a lot of silence, 
We just didn't see conflict. It just didn't happen around us. Or if it did happen, it may have been violent. It may have been abusive. It may have been like red lights, get away. This is dangerous. I feel unsafe. Or at the very least, it's what Pete Scazzaro calls dirty fighting where we use tactics and strategies in how we deal with conflict that isn't healthy. You see, all of us have picked something up along the way, and we bring that into our relationships. I want to talk today about what it means to be a peacemaker, what it means to fight well, but to do that, I'm going to start with talking about dirty fighting. You see, a lot of us have these unhealthy ways that we relate. Have you ever found yourself in a fight with someone and you're like, whoa, there's stuff coming out of me, reactions, responses, behaviors that I almost can't control. It's like a knee-jerk reaction, like that person said this and this is just what they got. And it's almost like we have this out-of-body experience and we see ourselves doing stuff like, why am I doing that? Or why am I going silent? Why do I know, not know what to do? Why do I feel completely paralyzed right now? Or maybe we've been on the other end of it and someone's been kind of doing some stuff to us and it's been hurtful and it's been painful and there's been nothing redemptive and you've walked away and felt like, oh, I don't know what to do with all of that that just came at me. See, we all have these unhealthy ways that we relate. I want to start by talking about shame because shame plays a huge role in conflict. You know, how many times have we been in a fight with someone and we just kind of find ourselves storming out because we're embarrassed and ashamed of our own behavior? Like we've walked away because we're like, I don't know what to do with the fact that I feel bad about what I did, or what I said. I have no way to process that. Nobody gave me tools to deal with my shame. And so we walk away. See, many of us grew up in an environment of shame. We grew up in an environment where we as kids were told we had to feel bad about the stuff that we'd done. Why don't you go to your room and think about how bad that choice was? Why don't you take some time to think about what a kid you are, what a bad kid you are? You see, that's the voice of shame, and some of us grew up in those kind of environments. And if you grow up in a shame environment, very often we begin to use the same kind of shame strategies in our relationships. Even when we don't want to, even when we know they were hurtful, we find ourselves saying stuff and doing stuff and we're like, whoa, where is the shame coming from? And the thing about shame is it is a desire to punish. You see, shame is not about reconciliation and wholeness and moving towards you. It's I just want you to feel bad. Because if you feel bad, maybe you won't do that again. Maybe you change. It's an attempt to control. That's what shame, how shame is used in our relationships. It's communicated with words like, don't act like a baby, or you're hopeless. What's wrong with you? It's communicated with a look, a sigh, an eye roll, with silence. It seeps out of us to our kids and our spouses and our friends. You see, shame changes the way we see people. Isn't it amazing that you can get into a fight with somebody you love and you can find yourself genuinely thinking, how did I ever think I wanted to be married to you? Or like, I can't believe you were my closest friend. Because in that moment, in that conflict, all we can see is the negative stuff. And we feel like all this like anger rising and our perspective begins to change and we can't see that person for who they are. And it changes the way we see them. This is what shame does. Another thing that we use in our dirty fighting is the silent treatment. The most powerful weapon we have in our arsenal in conflict is silent treatment. Maybe in the moment, we're just like, I'm just, just going to refuse to talk to you. 
I don't reply to text messages. I'm, I'm, gosh, I'm so guilty of that. If my husband and I are in a little fight and I'll get a text from him, and I'm like, I'm just going to wait 30 minutes and let him feel it, you know? I mean, I'm just going to get real vulnerable with you today. We don't respond to emails. We arrive at CG. Well, I'm not going to speak this week because I was so annoyed about what happened last week. I'll pass you in the hallway and I'll give you a nod, but I'm not going to stop and talk to you because I've still got that thing. I'm giving you the silent treatment. And the thing is, silent treatment is toxic and it destroys relationships because here's what happens with silent treatment. It creates this distance. I step away from you and there's silence. But that void there, that's not empty because the enemy loves silent treatment. Because in those moments, he is anything but silent. You see, when you move away from someone, the enemy's just like, oh, I'll just fill that space. I've got a few things I'd love to say. And so he begins working his thing, lying, deceiving, planting thoughts, telling a narrative, planting division. There can be no space in our relationships for silent treatment. You see, sometimes silence happens because we just don't know what to do with conflict, right? Maybe you have someone in your life, similar to me, who just like enters into that conflict and in that moment you are paralyzed. It's like, I don't even know what to say to you. Silence. And that person is looking at you. Will you just respond to me? Will you just say, silence, I have nothing. Because in my house, we just sweep things under the rug. In my house, like we didn't do emotions. I don't, I don't know what to say to you in this moment. I feel like I'm ill-equipped. Some of us are afraid of what we might do if we open our mouths. Because we grew up in a home that was abusive and violent and aggressive and we're so terrified of living into that narrative that we've swung the other way. Now it's just like, I'll just do silence. Because if I open my mouth, I'm gonna be just like my dad or just like my mom and I'm gonna cause damage. And so to protect the people I love, I'm just gonna shut down. See, when we refuse to acknowledge pain and turmoil and conflict, when we run from it, we can't deal with it. Naming something is one of the most powerful things we can do in our relationships. See, the enemy loves vagueness. He will make you a rug and he will give you a broom. And he'll just be right there saying, just, just do what you've always done. Just, just brush it under. Tell him you'll come back to it later, but don't really. But you see, that's not how God works in our lives. God is specific. God names our circumstances. He names our pain. The Holy Spirit comes in and says, that one thing there, very specifically, I wanna deal with that. That's what he's doing this morning. Even as I'm talking, he's probably putting his finger on things in your life very specifically. What do you need to name this morning? What's that thing in your marriage that you just push under the carpet? Nobody really talks about it. What's that dysfunction that you know you do? What's that lie you're holding on to? What's the elephant in the room of your CG? So is all silence bad? No. There are times when we need to just step back, right? When we're in a conflict and we just need to say, you know, I need some space. I need to think. I need to process. But the difference between that kind of silence and silence treatment is the intention. You see, when I'm giving you silent treatment, I want to punish you. But when I need silence in order to process, to come back, to pursue wholeness and reconciliation, that's totally different. 
And that can be a really healthy thing. When someone gives you a boundary and says, I don't want you to contact me, or please could I have an hour, or I just need to go into the bedroom and chill, can I just have that space? Can we respect those boundaries? Because sometimes that is exactly what we need. And I just wanna say for children as well that sometimes children need that space. You see, sometimes as parents, and I've been guilty of this in my early parenting is like, because, again, because I just, I just kind of run towards conflict. Um, and it's like, no, we're going to deal with this right now, right this second. Don't you dare walk away from me. But that's not healthy because sometimes that child just needs to cool down. Sometimes that parent just needs to cool down. See, we've got to look at the strategies in our life, the ways we do things. You know, that we could go on and on and talk about dirty fighting. We could talk about sarcasm. We could talk about, oh, I was only joking. You didn't take that serious, did you? Gosh, I can't believe you thought that I meant that. We get defensive. We're interrupting. Dave talked about this the other week, like the ability to listen to someone and not be formulating our defense the whole time that they're talking. See, we do that, don't we? Babe, I just want to talk to you about something. Well, okay, I'm ready. I've got all my excuses. I'm just ready to give you a defense rather than being present in the moment and just listening. We cut people off. We don't let them finish their sentences. We bring stuff up from the past. It's like we hijack conversations with all of the emotions that maybe have nothing to do with that person, but stuff we've never dealt with. It's like, all right, I'm just going to bring it all right now. We lecture people and we blame and we're dismissive and the list could go on. But what kind of people are we called to be? If this is the dirty fighting, if this is the old false self, then who are we supposed to be? Well, Pete Scazzaro says that healthy community is not so much about us not having issues and conflict, but it means we have a particular way we approach issues and conflict. You see, the goal is not to be conflict-free. That's ridiculous. If you walked in here today and you were looking for a church that has zero conflict, I'm sorry, you came to the wrong church. Because the reality is conflict is just what happens because we have different families of origins and personalities and values. And at some point that stuff happens. But what Pete Scazzaro is saying is, it's not that those things are eliminated. It's that we have a particular approach to dealing with them. Matthew 5, 9 says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. This scripture, Jesus says this when he's on the mountain, it's the Beatitudes, and he's telling people how to live. But then 16 chapters later, he's in the temple, and he's overturning tables, and he's getting kind of crazy about the injustice that's going on there. Is Jesus not taking his own advice? I mean, is he like over here feeling it in this wonderful Holy Spirit moment, but then just kind of over here disregarding? No. You see, Jesus knows the difference between being a peacemaker and a peacekeeper. Peacemaker versus a peacekeeper. Caitlin Garrison says that a peacekeeper desires to maintain peace by avoiding conflict. You see, peacekeeping is passive. It's unhealthy. Don't get anyone upset. Don't rock the boat. Be nice. But we're not called to be peacekeepers. You see, just like Jesus, sometimes we have to disrupt false peace. She goes on to say that a peacemaker is willing to resolve outer and inner turmoil in order to establish peace with others and themselves. See, I think what she knows and what we need to know this morning 
is that sometimes disrupting that false peace, entering into conflict in a healthy way, can be a catalyst. It can be a catalyst in our life. You see, we think conflict is a nuisance and those people could just believe what we believe or think like us or behave like we would. If they could just get out of the way, I could get on with the real business of life. But in fact, it's in conflict. There's a catalyst. There's something that happens that actually changes us and our relationships and the world around us. I mean, what if we've been running from the very thing that could change us to be more like Jesus? What if our conflict in our marriages and our friendships and our CGs and our church, what if it could be redemptive? What if it could be magical and beautiful and healing? See, when Jesus went into the temple, he was seeking change. He disrupted that false peace in order to bring about true peace. So how do we do this if we wanna be like him? I want to just share four key things that Pete Scazzaro talks about in the Emotionally Healthy series. This is going to be a little like teaching, and then I'm going to do some preaching. Is that okay? First thing he says when you're entering into a conflict is ask for permission. How many of us are really good at choosing really bad times to have fights? Me. Um, So this week, I decided to bring up a really huge thing with my husband at 11 p.m. at night. And it didn't go well, I'm just gonna be honest. (laughs) And the next morning I was like, what was I thinking? I'm writing a sermon about this stuff, right? But it's like so ingrained these unhealthy habits and I had to go back and be like, that was the right thing but totally the wrong time. So ask for permission. If you wanna have a difficult conversation with somebody, if you know there's some conflict you've gotta work through, On the drive to church on a Sunday morning might not be the best time. Or passing them in the hallway, or arriving on the doorstep to CG, or dropping your child off at school. There are times when we need to just say, can I have this conversation? And when we start that, the first thing we want to say is, I notice. I notice you're giving me some advice that I didn't ask for. I notice that your, your rent is late. I notice that you leave the dirty dishes. I notice that you're on the phone when we're trying to have date night. I notice, I notice, I notice. I notice concrete behavior. Not I notice this specific feeling because that's not for me to name. But I notice this concrete behavior. And then the next statement goes like this. I value... As in, I notice the dishes are left in the sink all the time, but I really value a clean kitchen because. Or I value the time we spend together being undisturbed because. Or I value paying rent on time because. You see, what happens so much in conflict is there's different values. This happened recently to me. I was taking my my five-year-old to preschool, and parents in this room, you know what I'm saying when you're trying to get out of the house? It's one of the most stressful times in life when you're trying to get out of the house with a small kid. And my five-year-old is amazing, love him to death, but he's got one speed, only one, (laughs) and it's very slow. And so we're late, and he's sitting on the floor, and I think he's probably an Enneagram 4. I love you, Enneagram 4s. I really do. 
but he's all in his feelings, you know? So he's like sitting on the floor and he's tying his sandals and he's just slow. And he's talking about his sandals and the colors of the sandal. And I'm just standing there with the door open, like, babe, we gotta, we gotta go, we gotta go. And, and it didn't end so well. And we got into the car and he could tell I was frustrated and I was frustrated. And as we're driving, he's giving me the silent treatment. And so finally I say, um, hey, I, I feel like there's some tension here, sweetheart. Um, are you angry at mommy? Yes. <laughs> Is it because mommy was getting, was using her, we call it the firm voice. Was mommy using her firm voice? Yes. So I said, um, okay, let me tell you, I really value getting to preschool on time. And this, from the mouth of a five-year-old, I don't value being on time. So number one, good job with that incredible sentence. Um, and number two, it was just like a lightning bolt to me that he wasn't being a bad kid. He wasn't deliberately trying to mess with me. He just doesn't understand the value of being on time. And that's okay because he's five and he's in his feelings and he's looking out the window and he's doing stuff. And in that moment, I was like, wow. And I was able to have this conversation with him about what it means when you're in conflict with someone because you want different things. And it was this incredible moment where I had this realization that so often I think people are being annoying or they need to get their stuff sorted out when simply we just have different values. And sometimes we need to talk about that even with our children. And on that note, I wanna, I wanna say that it's so important for us to model to our children how to do conflict because otherwise they grow up in a home where they just don't see it. And if you don't see it, you don't know what to do with it. The other day, my husband and I were having an argument, not like a heated argument, just disagreeing. And my nine-year-old walked into the room and he's like, what are you guys doing? I said, oh, we're arguing. He goes, oh, okay, and walked out. <laughs> and then a few minutes later, I made sure that he overheard us say, I love you, I love you too. Because what I want my nine-year-old to see is that conflict can be incredibly healthy and you can walk away from it still in love with someone, still committed to them. You see, we need to model to our children how to do this. Next thing, I notice, I value, when you do this, I feel. When you do this, I feel. You see, feelings matter. We're not robots. When you asked for that person's input but not mine, it made me feel. When you didn't invite me to lunch, it made me feel. When you gave me unsolicited advice, it made me feel. You see, it's important to talk about our feelings. It teaches our brain to be aware of our emotions. One thing I want to say about when we're in conflict with people, don't tell them you know their intentions. I mean, how many times have we been in conversation, and I mean myself here, and I've said things like, I know exactly what you meant when you said that. Oh, I know you did it on purpose. Oh, I know what you're trying to say. Mmm, just back up from that, Ruthie. Because what we don't want to do is name people's intentions. We don't know what's going on in another person's heart or in their mind. Be careful. Be careful of always never language. You always never take out the trash. Right, this is a thing you always do. This is a thing you never do. Those kind of words are dirty fighting. They're dangerous, we wanna avoid them. And if someone brings something up to you like this, like when you did this, it made me feel, what's a great response? Well, that's stupid. Or I, it doesn't make me feel that way. No, no, people. <laughs> we wanna pause and we wanna say stuff like, wow, thank you for telling me how you feel. I know that took courage. 
I want to take it seriously. I want to listen to you. Be specific. I notice, I value, I feel, I'd like you to. Sometimes we struggle with this. I'd like you to stop doing that. I'd love it if you would consistently take out the trash. I'd really appreciate it if you would stop interrupting me. See, part of conflict is being incredibly specific about what we need. Now, all of these tools sound great, right? And you can go back and look at your notes later and kind of pull them out and practice them <laughs> with people. But this stuff is hard to do. In the, in the emotion, when everything's kind of happening, it's like, oh, whoa, how, how do I do this? How do I practice this? And it's partly hard because some of us haven't dealt with some really deep inner stuff in us. It's like we can say all the right things and we can ask all the right questions, but some of us are still sliding back into patterns that we inherited from our family. We're still thinking the same ways. And you might feel overwhelmed and you might be feeling overwhelmed this entire series and just thinking, well, you don't know what kind of family I came from. And you don't know how difficult it has been. And you don't know how long I've been living this way. You can't relate to that. You don't know how hard I've tried to like turn the ship and it just never happens. It's just too difficult. I just can't change. Well, there is a guy that I think could probably relate to that and his name was Jacob. And we read that, that scripture at the beginning about an encounter that he has with an angel. But just for some context, Jacob was born into quite a dysfunctional line. He's the grandson of Abraham and the son of Isaac, who, yes, we've heard all those great stories about them, but they also did some really bad things as well. So he was born into this dysfunctional line, and the conflict predates him. I wonder how many of us can relate to that. The conflict, the deception, the dysfunction predates us. It's like we just like, boom, we were dropped right into the middle of it. And then Jacob is born, and they name him Jacob, which means deceiver. And he literally lives into that his entire life. I mean, he is deceptive. He steals. He masquerades. But he's savvy. And he, like, builds up all this wealth for himself, and he lives that way, self-sufficient, doing his thing. For 20 years, he's running, though. He's running from his brother Esau. And if you know this Old Testament story, you'll know that Jacob tricked Esau out of his inheritance— and then he fled and he ran. And then right before the scripture we read, God appears to him and he says, hey, I want you to go back to the conflict. I want you to go back to your brother. You know that one that you've got that thing with? Go back. And so Jacob decides he's going to go back. He sends his servants on ahead and they come back and they're like, yeah, Esau's coming to meet you. And he also has 400 men with him. And Jacob is terrified. In verse 7 of that chapter, it says he's in great distress. You see, up until this point, Jacob has managed to weasel his way through life. He's been self-sufficient. He can get it done. He knows how to handle stuff, but he can't handle this situation. Because this thing with his brother is so big and he can't control him. And now he's coming to meet him with 400 men. And is that an army? I mean, how is this conflict going to go? So he's terrified. And we pick up this story the night before they're about to meet. And Jacob is sleeping. He goes to sleep, goes to camp. And the thing that we need to remember about this moment is that God wants him right here. God has brought him intentionally to this moment because here's the thing. Jacob thought this is an outer conflict. This is a conflict with another person. 
And what God said was like, no, this is an inner conflict. You see, some of the things we think are about them and outside of us are actually about us. And God will lead us on a journey to deal with conflict and things that are painful and difficult. And he will intercept us halfway through that journey for a purpose. Because he's like, I know, I called you to go do all this outer thing. But in your obedience to do that, I'm going to meet you about this inner thing. You see, and what's interesting about this is that Jacob meets this man. And later in the book of Hosea, we, found out, we find out it's an angel. And they wrestle. How interesting. Because Jacob... When he was in the womb with Esau, they were twins, he's literally wrestling. And he spends his whole life wrestling. And then God shows up. He's like, okay, you want to wrestle? Let's wrestle. You see, God meets him in his dysfunction. But it's almost as if God is saying, this has been your life. Wrestling and wrangling your agenda, your self-sufficiency. But now it's going to be a different ending. Because you don't need another win. What you need is a major identity shift. God meets him to do something deep. You see, God sometimes leads us into the waters of conflict in order to change us. See, his eyes were on Esau. Gosh, he's coming. He's got 400 men. What did I do? How am I going to make this right? God's eyes were on Jacob. Let's deal with this thing. God is so faithful. He will meet us in our dysfunction because he no longer wants us defined by our past, by our parents, by our history, or our personality. See, Jacob, this conflict, this deception, this dysfunction was literally in his bones. I mean, he was named after it. He lived into it for so long. It was like a part of him, and he'd grabbed stuff his whole life, doing it his way, his strategies, and God wanted to shift that. God had blessing for him. God had a new name for him, a new identity for him. You see, God wanted to change the story arc and redefine the narrative. You see, when we name things, we can change things. So God renames Jacob. No longer would he be the deceiver, but he would be Israel. But he had to lay down the deceiver identity. You see, some of us here this morning, we're still clinging on to the words that our parents spoke over us. Or more so, we're clinging on to the words that they never spoke over us. We're longing to hear them say, I'm proud of you. I'm longing to say, I'm with you. We just never had it. Some of us simply didn't have our parents in our lives. And we felt this void and we become defined by what we did not have, by what we did have that was painful, by the disappointment, by the words spoken over us. And we carry them with us. It's like they're in our bones and we run to San Francisco and we say, I'm going to start a new family. I'm going to do it different. And suddenly as we get older and older, we realize this stuff is in me and how do I get it out of me? I think that's exactly what's happening here with Jacob. This stuff is in his bones. Like how do I get this out of me? How do I break this generational dysfunction? And God shows up and he says, I'm going to give you a new name, but you're going to have to step out of Jacob. You're going to have to step out of deception. Some of you this morning, God's invitation is, I've got a new name for you, but you're going to have to leave behind 
how you've always been defined. You're going to have to leave behind the name that you were given, the stuff that wasn't said for you, the disappointment, the expectations, the pain, the trauma. You're going to have to leave that behind if you want a new name. Because to step into something new, you have to leave the old behind. There is blessing attached to your name. Jesus paid for it on the cross. But sometimes we have to wrestle for it. Sometimes we don't just slide into it when someone lays hands on us and gives us a prophetic word. Sometimes we have to get down and dirty and say, I'm going to fight for my inheritance because I want to change my family line. See, in that moment, Jacob received the name that his descendants would bear for eternity. What if God wants to give you a name for your descendants or for the generations that will come after you? What if that inheritance that is attached to that name is not just for you, but that for the hundreds and the thousands that are going to follow you? You see, God does something deep in us, in our foundations to shift us, but it's never just for us. It's for the people coming after us. You see, sometimes we're wrestling and it feels so hard. Like, why is this so difficult? It's just little old me. You're never fighting for little old you. You're fighting for the generations that come after you. If you feel like you're in a fight that's just like so huge right now, you're like, why is this so big? Why does this feel bigger than necessary? Just believe me, it's because the destiny and the inheritance and the blessing and the provision is bigger than just for you. It's for the people coming after you. See, God never just names our circumstances. He didn't just show up to Jacob and say, I see you've been deceiving, now I want you to live this way. He never just names our circumstances, he names us. You see, some of you think you come into God's presence, he just wants to name your stuff. He's like, no, I want to name you. I want to give you a new name. I want you to step into who I've always seen you to, to be. There was a word given at pre-service prayer today that God was saying to somebody or some people here, you were my idea. You see, some of you were an accident in human eyes. Some of you were that last kid that your parents never expected. Some of you were that kid to that young mom. Some of you were conceived out of pain. And that's been your narrative. And this morning, I want to speak over your life what God would speak over you. You were his idea. No matter the circumstances of your birth, he has a name for you. He sees you. He loves you. You've never been just an accident to him. See, some of us feel like, well, I've been doing some hard work. I've been stepping into conflict. Some of it's gone well. Some of it hasn't. It just feels so hard. It feels like a wrestle. Just last week, I had coffee with a friend, and I said, I've been reflecting on this year, and I said, gosh, it feels like everything has changed and nothing has changed. Because nothing on the outside that you can see looks different, but everything deep inside of me has shifted. But I have cried so many tears, and I've had to step into so much vulnerability, and it's this identity shift. You see, nothing like that comes easy. When God is shifting you at a deep level, if you're here this morning, you're like, oh, I feel like I'm being slayed again and again. Like Holy Spirit's just doing some deep stuff. Hang in there because you are becoming someone new. You are stepping into your new name and kind of like that cheesy image of the caterpillar becoming the butterfly. It has to wrestle to get out of that skin, out of that cocoon. 
If you were in that process, stay present. Because here's the thing. Most of us live our life down here. This is our perspective. This is who we are. These are our kind of sort of dysfunctional relationships. But God's inviting us up here. Healthy relationships, thriving family, wholeness, reconciliation, being a peacemaker. But if God doesn't change you down here, you can't sustain up here. If God doesn't shift your identity to believe that that is who you really are, then you'll try and get up there and you'll have the difficult conversations and you'll do the stuff, but you won't be able to hold it. You won't be able to sustain it. So God is so good to us that he meets us right here in our dysfunction. He says, okay, let's do some work. Let's wrestle. Let me give you a new name. And then when we start to inch into it and we struggle into it, it's this process that we're in because we're heading to the purpose. You see, the process is always for the purpose. The process is always for the purpose. But we hate the process because it's hard. We feel scared and we feel alone sometimes because God is getting at stuff that's incredibly painful. It's Father's Day today. So a few weeks ago, we remembered Mother's Day. Some of us in this room have so much pain around our parents and our family It's like Father's Day is complex and we're just like, we shut it down, don't want to feel it, don't know how to deal with it. And the invitation today is like the invitation to Jacob, will you go back? Maybe physically, a lot of the times emotionally. And will you let God intercept your journey and change the story of your life and give you a new name? Are we willing to do that kind of work? Because reality is we're not alone. I'm going to close with this. And we'll move into a time of response. This is a quote from the Emotionally Healthy Relationships day-to-day book. And it says, the call Jacob received was to turn toward all that he feared and walk back to his brother, not knowing what would happen. The promise of God was not that all would be fine or that all would be taken care of well ahead of his arrival. The promise was simple. I will be with you. Ultimately, reconciliation is a journey toward and through conflict. In this instance, God does not promise to do the work for Jacob. God does not promise that he will take care of everything and level the road for Jacob. God promises to accompany him to be present. We will find God present throughout the journey toward reconciliation, in the depths of fear, in the hopelessness of dark nights, and in the tears of reconnection. The pathway through conflict toward reconciliation is filled with God encounters if we have the eyes to see and the heart to feel. Conflict opens a path, a holy path toward revelation and reconciliation. God promises to be with us in this journey. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come on out. We're gonna move into a time of response now.